Hey, glad you could join us today on RK Ministries podcast, where each week we engage culture with biblical truth by sharing a message of truth and hope from a biblical perspective. Like the podcast, share the podcast, subscribe to the podcast, find us on Facebook and Twitter, and hope that you enjoy today as you join us on this episode of RK Ministries podcast. Well, good evening, everyone. Almost said good afternoon again. Just when you look out the window at the sun still shining, looks like it ought to be afternoon, but it is actually evening. And but I like it. I like it this way. Hey, hopefully Congress or somebody will decide that this is the way we ought to keep it. In my personal opinion, anyway. Well, today we're going to be looking in Revelation chapter fifteen. Hope everybody had. Hope everyone had a good Lord's Day and good opportunity to go and worship the Lord and study in his word and uh, as always we'll put this up on uh, YouTube Rumble you can find us in both of those places we'll put it up on our podcast as well RK Ministries uh, you can find that wherever podcasts are made so go find us on YouTube Rumble and find the podcast like them subscribe to them share them so we can continue to uh, build the audience and continue to spread the truth of God's word and so, today, without any further ado, let's get into Revelation chapter 15. Revelation chapter 15 begins, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you. For your righteous acts, acts have been revealed. After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, with golden sashes about their chest. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls, full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. And may God bless the reading of his word. So very short chapter, only eight verses, but a lot of things in there as far as introductory matter as it relates to these bold judgments that are going to come. So let's see if we can unpack this a little bit as we go through this text phrase by phrase. Beginning again in verse one, as typical of John, we see this phrase, then I saw, and here we see that he sees another sign. We've seen that kind of language before and uh, at the beginning of this uh, series of visions, if you will, leading up to uh, the the bold judgments, which will come about in in chapter 16. In chapter 12, Paul starts, Paul, John started the same way with this idea of seeing these signs. Um, in this vision, and I think it's important for us to understand uh, John's use of language here about these signs, and here he describes them as great and amazing. Mount suggests that these signs look beyond um, themselves and ultimately disclose the theology of the meaning of history. And of course, we have seen that in these last several visions that we have have gone through with the with the the really the vision that depicted um, redemptive history in a snapshot in uh, chapter 12. And then we saw in chapter uh, 13, I believe it was the, 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 
beast coming up out of the sea uh, and, the, and the one on the earth. And so we've seen God unfolding in these visions, redemptive history, kind of in a snapshot in these signs that John has seen. And so these visions he sees ultimately are pointing to God's redemptive work and God outpouring out his judgment uh, on this world. And I think this is appropriate for what we're about to see in this vision that is to come. Uh, through these bold uh, judgments. So John sees this this vision, and he says there are seven angels with seven plagues. Now, the angels haven't received the bowls yet, but they are described as these seven angels with these seven plagues. Maybe that's been their function uh, all along to bring about these plagues, and so they are given that title, even though they haven't received the bowls with the wrath of God. And you might make a distinction between the plagues and, and, the, and the bowls with the wrath in them uh, yet, but we'll see later on they'll receive these bowls and they'll begin to pour out these bowls but as always the number seven every number in revelation is symbolic in some way and number seven is no different we saw the seven churches which we know there are more churches more than seven churches in asia minor and so those seven churches were representative of the total church or the total people of God in some way. And, and seven is a number of perfection or completion, if you will. And so we see, again, I think, with these recurring ideas of seven, the seven seals, the seven trumpets, now the seven bowls with these seven angels, it's just really speaking about God's complete or perfect perfect judgment that's going to be poured out on the wicked inhabitants of the earth. Now, you guys know which perspective I'm coming from in Revelation. I, I don't hold to dispensational theology. I hold toward amillennial theology. And so I don't see these visions as chronological in their nature in that the seals open up to the trumpets open up to uh, the bowls in a sequential sense and that one leads to the other and ultimately you come to the end of the age. I have made it known quite clearly from the beginning that uh, I look at these from a recapitulation standpoint because I believe the revelation is not a puzzle book is a picture book and it's really almost like a cinematic picture book where we're seeing the same story being told from from varying angles throughout the book and we have we have pointed out the recapitulation aspects from some of these visions we see the same themes in every one of these visions in each one of them as we see it in a new vision we see it in a more uh, maybe a, a ramped up way or a different angle or different way and, and so i think there is this argument to be made for recapitulation in the visions that we see in revelation now when i come to this text right here uh, i got a problem I, I need to deal with or at least explain what how I how I take it if I want to be consistent with my understanding of Revelation because if you read this passage you see the next phrase if you're following along with me in your Bible which I hope you are or your digital device you see the next phrase in verse 1 is which are the last so again verse 1 then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angle, angels, we can call them angles, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. And then there's a qualifying statement after this that John makes, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And, and it's really uh, where we get the word uh, telos, which is is complete or full in in a sense and then the word last up here is um <clears throat> eschatos uh, last or final so what is john meaning and how can i be consistent in my understanding of this recapitulation idea and these not being uh, successions of judgments that one leads into the other chronologically in time until you get to the end of the age or the end of the tribulation period and and ultimately the coming of christ well again if i'm going to be consistent and i have to i have to look at this these that are last in 
either a way that would say that this is the fullness of God's wrath on display in, in relation to that second phrase we read that God's wrath is finished or full or complete in that way. <clears throat> but still that leads to this idea that it could be in a chronological way and it's complete in that this is the end of it as opposed to the first were precursors to it. One of the ways that G.K. Beale looks at this is seeing that what John is saying is these are the these are this is the last of the of the sequence of visions that he's going to see, and not necessarily the last in the sequence of chronological judgments that are going to come. And the reason he sees that because obviously he he views Revelation in the same way that I have come to view Revelation, and that is through this recapitulation aspect and seeing that these visions, while we see them unfold in a sequential order in Revelation, that sequential order does not in, in and of itself uh, indicate that these judgments are uh, chronological in time. That this is just the way that John saw these visions as they were given to him, and this is the last of those visions that of judgment that were give, well, that have been given to John. And so again, that that probably seems like a little bit of uh, hermeneutical gymnastics to get to that point, um, but. Uh, I'm going to stick with that for now, uh, and the Lord may change my mind later on that idea and, and bring me back uh, somewhere in the middle. Uh, and if he does, then, you know, I will I will yield to that understanding. But right now, I still see a lot of evidence in Revelation that this is telling the same story from very different angles. Uh, and we see the same kind of themes reoccurring in all these visions, and every one of them lead to a final consummation of the age in their own in their own way as we go through those visions. And I think we'll see the same thing happen in this one when we get to the end of the seventh seventh bowl uh, that we will see uh, beginning in chapter uh, sixteen. All right, so that's my argument for that. Anyway, verse two. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire and also those who had conquered the beast in its image and the number of its name. Now we've seen this sea of glass before in Revelation. As a matter of fact, in Revelation chapter 4, verse 6, I believe it is, we see this sea of glass associated with the throne room of God. And that glass, that sea of glass there is described as being crystal clear uh, in, in that um, in that vision, in that first throne room vision in, in Revelation chapter 4. The distinction here is that this sea of glass is mingled with fire. Now, I, I get it. We see the sea of glass. And so in my mind, if we're going to be consistent, this sea of glass has to be associated with the throne room of God, which I think we have already seen that uh, this vision is coming from heaven. John saw a sign in heaven. So John's seeing what's transpiring uh, in heaven. And then we'll transition later to what's going to happen on earth when we start seeing the bowls uh, being poured out upon the earth. And so there's no doubt in my mind that this is a heavenly throne room vision that John is seeing and that this sea of glass is that same sea of glass we saw in chapter four in verse six. I think it's the same, the same sea that we see a uh, river that we see uh, in uh, Ezekiel that comes from the throne of God, begins emanating from the throne of God. And, and so I think, I think this is, again, indicative of this throne room vision. Now, what does it mean that it's mingled with fire rather than crystal clear? Well, Mount says that, and, and again, Mount is not uh, amillennial. He is, he's, uh, uh, he's not, he's not, uh, premillennial or dispensational either he's more historic uh, he, he's a historic premillennial in the sense that he I think he does uh, see that Christ will come at the end of the age and usher in a millennial age but he doesn't see a secret rapture of the church so in that sense he looks at this more from a uh, chronological kind of order and so but I, I just tell you all that so you can understand his background. Whenever I quote Mounts, that's the per perspective he's coming from. He's, he's a little bit different than the perspective that I am coming from. But he, he says that this 
mingled with fire may indicate that this is just to heighten the splendor of the vision, uh, which you can, you can make that point. Um, I think, I, I think I like Bill's argument or understanding of it a little bit better because it fits with the context of what we're reading or about to understand because Bill in his commentary, he says that this fire and fire generally um, equals judgment in some way. And so these angels that are being introduced with these seven plagues are ultimately going to be pouring out the, the judgment or the wrath of God on, on the earth. And we'll see that at the end of this chapter, of, uh, a precursor of that, uh, making it even more plain that they're going to pour out God's wrath on the earth. So in that sense, uh, it, it makes it makes it appropriate to use this kind of language to to couple with this idea of judgment that's going to come because God is going to judge the world and maybe it is from this throne room that this judgment emanates out unto uh, the world. And so you, you make your own decision on, on what you think that uh, has to do with and I'm sure there are plenty of other arguments out there about what that may mean. And then we go back to verse two again, uh, uh, those who had conquered the beast and the image, uh, uh, the beast and its image and the number of its name. And again, you can go back. We talked about the number of the name of the beast, the, the mark of the beast, 666 in the previous chapters. So you can go back and find that and you can, you can find that discussion on that. But this point, the point of this is what we see in the heavenlies are those who have overcome, those who have conquered. Now that ought to strike a note in our minds because we've seen this idea of overcoming and conquering quite often in the book of Revelation. We saw it seven times at least in the seven letters to the seven churches. At the end of every one of those letters, there was this refrain and a promise that was given to those who overcome. That promise had various elements to it in each one of those letters, but God gave a promise to the overcomer, to the conqueror. Um, I think it's Nick. Uh, Nikao or Nike uh, is is the Greek word that is there, and it has to do with victor. And, and so those who overcome, and what did they overcome? They overcame the beast and its image and the number of its name. And again, just to keep fresh in our mind, at least from my perspective, what this idea is all about, because last week you heard me say, I think it was last week, uh, you know, you, you can't walk up to someone who's a Christian and shine your little uh, blue uh, ultraviolet light on their forehead and see the, the the name of God on their forehead, right? In the same way with the mark of the beast, it, it's not, it, it, it's symbolic. It's not talking about a, a that literal mark. Now, again, we talked about this idea of how they can facilitate what it really means. What it really means is these people who have not been sealed by God and who are those who are sealed by God? Those are the ones who have believed in Christ Jesus. Those are the ones who have bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. They have yielded their will to his. They've repented of their sin and placed their faith in Jesus Christ. They are part of the people of God and they are sealed by God. Paul says with the with the Holy Spirit in Ephesians, he's our guarantee. He's our earnest money. He is that seal that God places on us until the, uh, the culmination of the age when our salvation is uh, total and complete uh, when our body and our soul both have been uh, redeemed. And so it is those who receive the mark of the beast, as it were, are those who ultimately do bow to the spirit of this age that I, I the way I like to say it they bow to the spirit of this age they bow to the ruler of this age you know Satan that that serpent that we read about and then this world system that is ruled and governed by this serpent in a sense and, and controlled in some ways by the Satan uh, himself and so it is those who yield to this world system uh, in that way, they have sealed themselves in the name of the beast and bowed to the image of the beast, if you will, in that way. And these people that we see here on this crystal sea, uh, I mean, on this glass sea of glass mingled with fire are those who have overcome, those who've conquered the beast in its image. Well, how in the world did they conquer him? Well, we read about it in chapter 12 and verse 11, chapter 12, verse 11. Uh, in Revelation, uh, John wrote, and they have conquered him, 
by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. So how did they conquer? They conquered him through their, through their uh, relationship with Jesus Christ, through the blood of the lamb and by their testimony of their bowing their knee uh, to Christ and their allegiance to Jesus Christ. And so that's why I say Revelation is really about two groups of people, those who are sealed by God and those who are not, those who have bowed the knee to Christ and those who have bowed the knee to this world system. And there, there, there's only one saving grace to that is in this moment right now in time and space, as long as you have breath in your lungs, as long as you are alive, to, to say it another way, you have opportunity change the status of your existence in that it, God has revealed himself in Jesus Christ and God has commanded that all men, all women, all boys, all girls, all human beings bow their knee to Christ Jesus as Lord and Savior. And if you will bow your knee to Christ, you can be saved and you can become a son and daughter of Christ rather than a son and daughter of Adam. You can stand in the righteousness of Christ rather than be dead in your trespasses and sins and conform to the to this world rather than being transformed by the renewing of your mind through a relationship with Jesus Christ. So that's how they overcome this. They refuse to bow their knee to the spirit of this age. And they are faithful in their testimony and in their, in, in their uh, relationship with, with Jesus Christ. And rightly so. All right. And it goes on to say that they have harps of God in their hands. And so they're about to sing a song for us. And over and over again, we see this, this idea of people singing in heaven and singing with these instruments in heaven. We see the elders singing, right? We see those who are under the altar, the redeemed of the Lord singing. No, we see all kinds of people singing in heaven. So as it relates to this idea of worshiping God, music plays a very important role in our worship. And we, the Lord talks about putting a new song in our hearts. We ought to be a people who have a melody on our heart because of what God has done for us. And we proclaim the greatness of God, not only with, uh, with our, our, our words in, in speaking, but in our singing as we worship the Lord. And so hopefully every Sunday when you go to church, part of what you are doing is you are worshiping the Lord with the, with the instrument that God has given you. And that is your voice as you lift up praises to the Lord in song. And the Lord tells us that he inhabits the praise of his people. And so that aspect of worship is a very important aspect. And that's something that we see over and over again in the throne room of God. People are worshiping the Lord. So he goes on to verse three, it says, and they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God and the song of the lamb. Now, again, the song of Moses, it could be relating back to Exodus. Uh, obviously, Exodus chapter 15, there is this victory song that the children of Israel sing in relation to what God has done in rescuing them from the, their slavery in, in Egypt. And some of the aspects of that song we see in this song that is set before us today. And, you know, we don't need to press it too hard, but there is this idea of Moses in some way being a a type or pointing to Christ because part of the new part of the prophetic utterance of the Messiah coming that they were going to raise up a prophet like uh like Moses that God's going to raise up a prophet like Moses which I think was pointing to Messiah so in that way we sing this victory song that belongs to Moses and the lamb and so this song almost every aspect of this song almost every every uh strophe I think is how you say it s-t-r-o-p-h-e uh, or every stanza of this song uh is rooted in uh old testament uh, verbiage from various places in the scripture and it's just it's interesting i, I think one commentary i forget if it's bill or or mounts probably mounts he's a little bit more thorough in some historical aspects than gk bill is in his commentary but i think it was mounts that said uh and again i think it's a nestle allen i forget which which uh 
which version of Nestle Island that he, I didn't write this down, but in one of the Nestle Island's translations of uh, the, the New Testament, the Greek New Testament, they are, their, their assembly or, or compiling of the Greek New Testament, uh, it sa- he said that 80% of the words in this song found in Revelation were in italics, which indicated that they were quotes from other, from the Old Testament in the New Testament. So uh, there 48 words, I think, 10 out of those 48 words, I think was uh, what he said in that passage. But anyway, there's, uh, most of these this language comes from the Old Testament. So again, it just shows the the necessity for us to continue to stay hitched to the old testament contrary to what people like uh, andy stanley want us to believe that we can we need to unhitch from the old testament and everything in the new testament is rooted to the old testament the 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 apostles when they wrote their epistles when they wrote the gospels over and over again they're quoting from the old testament so we must be students of the old testament as well as the new uh, testament and so we see uh, this song, Great and Amazing Are Your Deeds, almost exact verbiage in Psalm 11 and 111 verse 3. And great and amazing are the deeds of the Lord. And again, if you're thinking about this from Moses' perspective, you can think about all the great and wondrous deeds that God did in the in the plagues in Egypt and in the Exodus to bring the people uh, out and then in the wandering in the wilderness, how the Lord took care of them so much so that not even uh, one of their shoes wore out in those 40 years they wandered in the wilderness. So great and amazing are the deeds of the Lord. Uh, and you can think about that in, in general revelation as well, natural revelation, where great and amazing are the deeds of God and the creation that is set before us, so much so that Paul would say in Romans chapter 1 that there is enough in creation to let people know that there is a divine being that ought to be worshipped. And the problem that men have is that they don't, it's not that they don't see that, it's that they, that it is that they suppress that. And because of that, they find themselves guilty before holy, a holy God, and they are stand before him without excuse. And then he goes on in this song, O Lord God, the Almighty. Again, we see very similar language in Amos chapter 4 in verse 13. God is the Almighty. He is the all-powerful one. He is the only sovereign in this universe. Just and true are your ways. Again, Deuteronomy 32.4, almost the exact uh, language that is there. And that is the understatement of the day, right? Just and true are God's ways. Always are God's ways are just and true. I might not always understand God's ways. I might not always uh, think that he's doing it in, a, in, in the time that I think he ought to do it and the way I think he ought to do it. But God's ways are always just and God's ways are always true. And I can trust God no matter what the circumstances look like, no matter what it feels like to me, I can trust God because his ways are always just and his ways are always true. Then he goes on in this song, O kings of the nations. I may have left out something in that passage there. I copied it straight over. I'm talking to myself right now. Oh, kings of the nation. So I, I, that's the end of that phrase. Oh, Justin, true are your ways. O oh, king of the nations. God is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And again, we see that same language in Jeremiah chapter 10 and verse 7. And this idea that the kingdoms of the world are under uh, the uh, authority of God and should yield and submit themselves to God is nothing new to the Bible. Uh, as a matter of fact, Psalm chapter two, when we read about this idea, the kings of this earth want to break the bonds from break their bonds from the Lord and go their own way, but ultimately they are in subjection to the Lord and they are to bow the knee to the Son, meaning the Messiah, the chosen one, uh, in order to avoid and escape the wrath of God that is to come. And we see we've seen this already in Revelation chapter 11 verse 15 the kingdoms of the world has become the king the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our lord and of his christ and he shall reign forever and ever and so 
this idea that God is enthroned, you know, again, that's the encouraging part of Revelation, especially for the first century Christians who received it, because in their day, Caesar was on his throne, and in their day, Caesar was going to ultimately uh, sanction persecution against uh, believers in Christ. It was already beginning in their day, or already happening, I should say, in their day, where they were uh, being persecuted and uh, they were being uh, tribulation was coming upon them and they were being pressured to bow to the to the um, spirit of the age to offer their pinch of incense to Caesar uh, to celebrate with the trade guilds in order to continue to keep their job or their livelihood or be able to buy and sell goods kind of sound familiar right if you get the mark of the beast you won't be able to buy and sell goods uh, so that's one of the ways that they uh, would be hindered from buying and selling is if they did not bow to the spirit of the age and participate in the paganism that was being demanded of them and bowing their knee to Caesar as Lord in the sense of God himself. Um, and so that would cause them problems in their life. Jesus is king of kings is what uh, John is reminding these first century believers. Or rather, God is reminding them through John that he is on his throne. That no matter what Caesar says, no matter what the world is saying, God is on his throne. It's not something that has to take place later on. Right now, today, in this moment, God is enthroned. Like my favorite preacher, Vodibakum, always says, God is not running for God. There is only one God, and he has always been on his throne, and he is always in control. And we can take courage in knowing uh, that no matter what the leadership of our world looks like and the circumstances in which we live <clears throat> verse four who will not fear O lord and glorify your name the implication is because you are great and amazing because your mighty deeds have been shown because you are the almighty because your 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 ways are just and true who is it out there who will not bow their knee to you who will not fear you reverence you and glorify your name well, I'll tell you who it is, Romans, uh, Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it, meaning the beast, uh, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the Lamb who was slain. So there is a group of people that are going to not fear God and not bow their knee to him. It's all of those who will worship the beast. And we talked about Revelation 13, 8 in that chapter. So you can go find that chapter and, and find the language we talked, or the, the commentary we gave on Revelation chapter 13, verse verse 8. But the reality is, again, Revelation is about two groups of people. Those who will fear God, who, who bow their knee to him, and those who do not, those who bow their knee to the spirit of the age. And so the question set before you and set before me is, which group are you in? And if you find yourself in the group of those who have bowed their knee to the uh, spirit of this age, how can you move from that group to those who have been the sealed of God? And we'll talk about that as we move to the end of this chapter. All right, he goes on to say, all, all for you are holy. And again, another understatement of the day uh, reminds me of what Peter says, right? Be holy for I am holy. God, uh, talking about God. God is holy uh, and his holiness is the standard by which he judges uh, the world. And then he goes on to say, all nations will come and worship you. Psalm 86, 9, we see very similar language there. Every nation will ultimately bow their knee to Christ. Uh, again, we see that in, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. We see it at the end of that section uh, uh, toward verses 10 and 11, where it talks about that every knee will uh, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that's talking about in that day of the judgment of God. If you don't bow now, you will bow one day. And, and every nation will ultimately find themselves under the, the rule and the control of Jesus Christ, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, that moves us into, our, so the last phrase in verse 4, I forgot, almost forgot it. The last phrase in verse 4 is, for your righteous acts have been revealed. And so again, we've seen this idea of God revealing himself to humanity over and over again in this, in this 
song about his deeds that had been done. So men have seen those deeds and that's why they uh, come to worship the Lord and his deeds have been revealed. And how much more true is that today? God is continually revealing himself. And that, that's that's the thing. It's, it's, God's not playing games with, with people. This is not hide and seek on God's part. God has gone out of his way to make himself known to this world. God has gone out of his way to make himself known to humanity. And so Paul, again, rightly so in Romans chapter one, it's not that men and women do not know. It's that they willingly suppress the truth that they do know intuitively in their inner being. And so, uh, you know, what about you? Are you suppressing the truth that you intuitively know that there is a God and that God ought to be worshiped? Well, I'm here to tell you today that he is worshiped through the person Jesus Christ and that you have been called and commanded by God to worship him and to worship him by coming through his son and through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And he has revealed that to us by raising ultimately Christ from the dead. So uh, that leads us to the last section of this uh, very short chapter, verses five through eight. And John sees another scene. And we see that because of the first phrase in verse number five. After this, I looked So this is the beginning of a new vision, if you will, or at least another aspect of this vision. After this, I looked and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was open. Well, if we're students of the Bible, and if you've been with me at at, uh, Friendship Baptist Church over the last couple years, we've gone through Exodus and so that language ought to ought to at least jog our memory a little bit about the tabernacle in our study we did on the tabernacle leading us ultimately to uh, the book of Romans where we are now laying the groundwork for God's work of redemption from the Old Testament perspective. And so in this in this tent of witness, this is the this is speaking of the tabernacle. Um, but this is the heavenly tabernacle, not the earthly tabernacle, because John has seen this in heaven, right? It says that this tabernacle, this tent of witness was open in heaven. And now the, the idea of test, some translations may have testimony uh, there rather than the word witness. Uh, but this idea of the testimony, what was the testimony? Well, the testimony is the Ten Commandments. And so this is painting a picture of the throne room of God and the Ark of the Covenant uh, in the Holy of Holies on the earthly tabernacle to have been the Holy of Holies in the Ark of the Covenant where the Ten Commandments were kept. The testimony, the witness of God in this covenant relationship with Israel was kept. So again, this is a figure of speech, a way of saying that this is uh, coming from what John is seeing is from the throne throne room of God, God's God's dwelling place. And as a matter of fact, that's what the tabernacle was all about. It was to represent God's dwelling place among his people. And God said that in Exodus, this is where I will meet with you uh, in the Holy of Holies above the cherubim. That's where he would meet with them. And so that's the tent of witness. And the witness is the, is the 10 commandments that, that, uh, codification of this covenant relationship that God uh, had with his people. And so it showed another thing to me when I, when you think about that, this is John in what we would call the new Testament era, right? Toward the end of the new Testament church era, writing this epistle, this apocryphal uh, literature, this revelation. And when he looks into the throne room of God, what is still, what is still relevant there? It is the Ten Commandments. It is the Decalogue, this testimony or this witness. And if you're with us at Friendship Baptist Church, or if you're nearby and you're not involved in a church anywhere, I encourage you to come to Friendship Baptist Church when we get done with the Romans, which will be several several more weeks, month month or so out, because we're just in chapter 13. Uh, we just finished up chapter 13, so we'll be going to chapter 14 uh, next time, and we're moving to chapter 16. So we've still got a few chapters left, but we're going to go and do a, uh, a study on the Ten Commandments and understand, I get it, while we're not under the law and we're not saved by keeping the law, 
the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments are still relevant to us today. As a matter of fact, our text this morning in in, uh, Romans chapter 13 made that point because Paul says that if we will love our neighbors ourselves, we will fulfill the law. And then he listed for us four of the six commandments that are on the second table of the law. So there is something to be said about those who are followers of Christ for having the the righteous requirements of the law fulfilled in our life through this Christian ethic of love. And you can go find my sermon on that this morning on the podcast, uh, RK Ministries, and you can you can hear the, my commentary on those verses and understanding the application of that to our Christian life. But you and I need to understand that the law is still relevant and it's still important, and it still is the standard of holiness by which God judges humanity, and it expects us as believers to live in light of, not to get saved, but because we are saved. So anyway, it's just interesting that that is still a relevant part of this narrative, even here at the culmination of the age in this, in this letter, or in this, this apocryphal writing. And so it goes on in verse 6. It says, out of, this, out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues. So again, this is the throne room of God. God is the one enthroned. And all of this that we are reading about, these seven plagues, these seven bold judgments that are about to be poured out on the earth, guess where they're coming from? They are emanating from the throne room of God. So it's under the authority of God that this wrath and judgment is about to take place on the wicked of this earth. And don't lose sight of that. And again, we talked about the seven, seven angels, seven plagues, seven, the number of completion, number of perfection, if you will. So this is the complete, perfect uh, judgment of God that's going to be poured out on the earth. Now, these seven angels, they're clothed in pure, bright linen with golden sashes around their chest. And really, that's a picture of um, this priestly order, if you will, the priestly garb, if you will. And so they may in some way uh, represent those priests who would have ministered in this uh, temple or in the holy place on earth in the tabernacle. And so they may be the uh, heavenly uh, representatives of those pri- that priestly order that, that function in the tabernacle, in the throne room, uh, the throne room of God. And it would make sense that they would be there in that proximity in the throne room that God would use them to bring about uh, this wrath upon the earth. And so uh, verse seven, it says, and one of the four living creatures, and we've seen these four living creatures over and over again. Again, they are are special. uh, They have a special responsibility in their function as ministering to God around the throne. The first throne room vision we saw, we saw these four living creatures around the throne. You can go all the way back to the Old Testament and see the see very similar uh, language about these four living creatures uh, who are around the throne uh, of God. But one of these four living creatures came and gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls. So now these angels with the plagues have these bowls in which these the wrath of God is going to be uh, poured out on the earth on. And so one of the things about these golden bowls, and again, I don't want to press too hard on it, but you can't help but think about it if you remember where we've come in Revelation, because already we've seen kind of these golden bowls and in other places ESV calls them censers. And we've seen this angel who's ministering uh, on the altar of incense, which we've already identified in Revelation chapter five and verse eight, this altar of incense, uh, which was uh, the incense was mingled with the prayers of the saints, which went up before the Lord. And in chapter six, we see those, uh, those, uh, martyrs who are under the or before the throne of God, if you will, and they ask the question, how long is it going to be before you vindicate us, uh, O Lord? And then later on, we see in Revelation chapter 8, 
that one of these angels whose responsibility is to minister to this altar of incense has this golden censer, if you will, and he fills it with fire from this altar and he slings it onto the earth. And from that, the tr- seven trumpet judgments begin to be poured out on the earth. So again, we made the, made the, um, statement there that this may have been in response to the prayer that those martyrs had in chapter six, that this was the answer to their prayer, that God was ultimately vindicating them by pouring out his wrath on this earth. So again, maybe don't want to press too hard on that, but it seems like a very similar thing is going on in this chapter, that these angels are receiving these censors and they're going to be filled with God's wrath. And it's from these golden bowls that this wrath is going to be poured out on to the earth. And that's the next statement is that these seven golden bowls are full of the wrath of God. And hey, this is the thing that people do not want to hear today, right? Whose wrath is it? Well, it's God's wrath. Where is it emanating from? From God's throne. And so the thing that we need to help people understand today that God is going to pour out his wrath on this world. He's going to pour out his wrath on all of those who are unrighteous, wicked, rebellious sinners who refuse to bow their knee to Jesus Christ. God will, that day of wrath is coming. And that's the aspect of the gospel that we have to share with people today. We, so many people, so many preachers refuse to share the whole counsel of God's wrath. We want to concentrate in on this idea that God loves us, and rightly so, he does. This morning in Sunday school, I shared the verse prior to the one I'm about to read to you, Romans chapter 5, verse 8, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's how he demonstrated his love for us, and he died for us even when we were rebels and enemies of God. And he demonstrated that love. But how did he demonstrate his love? You and I need to understand John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, or, or, or more, more accurately, in God loved the world in this way. In what way? That he gave his son. Well, what does it mean that he gave his son? It means that his son went to the cross of Calvary and his son bore in himself on the cross your guilt and your sin before God the Father. And God the Father poured out his wrath against you your guilt and your sin, he poured out that wrath on Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus bore the wrath of the Father in your place. And so that's why you and I must be saved is because God's going to pour out his wrath one day, ultimately and completely and fully upon this world, upon all who are unredeemed, unregenerate, rebel sinners who refuse to bow the knee to Christ. God is going to pour his wrath out one day on all of them. That is why you and I must be saved so that we can be saved from the wrath of God that is to come. Yes, he saves us from ourselves, our sin, but ultimately he saves us from himself and his wrath that will be poured out on all unregenerate humanity who refuse to bow the knee to Christ. Listen to what Paul says, Romans 5, 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him, by Christ, from the wrath of God. That's why Romans chapter three, Paul says that Christ was a propitiation. God sent him, sent him to be a propitiation for our sin. He, he was the covering over of our sin with the shedding of his blood. He was the appeasing of God's wrath in relation to our sin. He erased the guilt that is set before us uh, by the shedding of his blood, by his substitutionary atonement on the cross of Calvary. And in that way, if we will repent of our sin and place our faith in Jesus Christ, we will escape the wrath of God that is to come. Listen to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10. 
and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So we're not children of wrath. If we are believers in Jesus Christ, if we have bowed our knee to Christ Jesus, we are not children of wrath. God, God in Christ has saved us from his own wrath. And that's our only hope. That's the only way that we can hope to stand in that day of judgment is to have bowed our knee to Christ Jesus, to have, to have obeyed God's command to repent and believe uh, the Lord Jesus that he is who he said he is and that he did what he said he did and that he is the only way for us to have right standing before God so that because he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's the great imputation that took place on the cross of Calvary. Christ took our sin so that we could have his righteousness if we would but repent and believe and that's the message of the gospel that's how god demonstrated his love for us because he ought to have snuffed every one of us out in our sleep he ought to have judged every one of us and poured out all of his wrath on each one of us but in his love he spared us and he and he sent his son to bear that wrath in our place so that if we believe in him that we can we can escape the wrath that is to come and be saved from the wrath of the father and he goes on to finish out that phrase, the, these seven angels who had these seven bowls full of the wrath of God and God who lives forever and ever. And again, to me, that's one of the most encouraging phrases that we can see in the book of Revelation because it says to the first century church, you remember in Revelation chapter one, John says to them, I am your partner in the kingdom, in this patient endurance, and also in this tribulation that's taking place. So they are already under tribulation in the first century when John was writing this. And tribulation has continued throughout the history of the church in some way, in different levels, in different capacities, and it will continue until the day that Christ comes again. I believe it's going to ramp up in the latter days prior to Christ's coming. But tribulation is here now. People around this world who are believers are being persecuted and in tribulation because of their faith. But here's the encouraging part. For those first century believers, when they read this, no matter what was going on with Caesar, no matter what was going on with the trade guilds, no matter what the spirit of this age was trying to do to them, to pressure them to, to abandon their faith and to bow the knee to the spirit of the age, bow the knee to Caesar, they understood when John wrote, this, that God is still on his throne. God lives forever and ever. Caesars come and go. Kings come and go. Presidents come and go. Governors come and go. But God is eternal and he has been eternally on his throne. So God is in control of this universe. No matter what the circumstances look like, God is the eternal sovereign of this universe and he is in control and if we would believe that we could live in light of a peace that passes all understanding because our faith would be in God and God alone knowing that he is victorious not that he will be victorious but that he is victorious I get it we're in the midst of the battle right this minute but he is victorious he is already overcome in Christ Jesus. And then that leads us to verse number eight uh, to round this out. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his powder and again, a power, excuse me. And you, you can't help, or my mind couldn't help but go to Mount Sinai, right? We seen that. We saw that in Mount Sinai when the glory and the power of God descended on Mount Sinai, it was filled with smoke and lightning and thundering uh, and all those things that we've read over and over again in Revelation. But we also see that when God God, when God visited the children of Israel in the in the tabernacle, it was filled with the glory of God, the smoke uh, representing that Shekinah glory uh, of God. And here's uh, a very interesting way that this ends uh, finishes up for us, because this smoke filled this sanctuary. Says no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Now, don't you listen to what Mount says about this? And I, I think it's very appropriate and very uh, something we need to understand. It says once the time of the final judgment has come, no one can stay the hand of God. 
The time of intercession is past. God in his unapproachable majesty and power has declared that the end has come. And I want to tell you, my friend, that is a scary thought. You know, in in Peter's day, when he was writing his epistles, there were those who would, were coming and saying, hey, when, when is Jesus going to come again? It's been, you know, hey, few few years. He hadn't come back yet. When is he going to come? When is he going to come again? Is, is God slack in his promises? Is he slack in, in fulfilling what he said he's going to do? And Peter made this uh, profound statement. God's not slack concerning his promises, as some count slackness, right? But he is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Isn't that profound? Here's what you and I need to realize. There is coming a day of judgment. There is no doubt about it. God has declared it. From Genesis to Revelation, God has proclaimed that there is coming a day of judgment where he's going to pour out his wrath on this world and he is going to ultimately vindicate those who are his children and he's going to right the wrongs of the curse. He's going to recreate heaven and earth and he's going to pour out his wrath on this world. That day is coming. And if you're not ready for that day, you will be consumed in the wrath of God you will be cast into outer darkness. You will be cast into a lake of fire. You will not be able to stand under the judgment of Almighty God. But God is long-suffering. They were already complaining in the first century that Jesus hasn't come back and questioning God. We're, we're, we're in the 21st century, over 2,000 years removed from those events. And that shows you how long-suffering God is, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Every day that Christ tarries is another day that someone has an opportunity to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And while when we get to the end of Revelation, we're going to read where John says, even so come, Lord Jesus. And that ought to be our prayer. Come, Lord Jesus. And the more we look out at this world and the debauchery that's in this world, it drives us to say, come, Lord Jesus, put an end to this wickedness that is in this world. But you and I also ought to also thank God for every day that he tarries because you have a family member, I have a family member who has not bowed the knee to Jesus Christ and every day that Jesus tarries from coming it's another day they have an opportunity to give their heart and their life to Jesus Christ. You know people in your workplace, I know people in my workplace, you know acquaintances around uh, your circle of influence, all of them need to know Jesus Christ and if they, if Jesus comes tonight, it's going to be too late for them. So you say, Lord, although I want you to come, thank you, Lord, if you give them another day, right? That, that's God's purview. That's not mine. But we ought to thank God because he has tarried for so long for those who are our loved ones and our friends. But here's the, here's the other reality. There is coming a day of judgment when Jesus will part those eastern skies and that he will ultimately bring final judgment and pour out God's wrath on this world. But the, the reality of the situation is that throughout history, more people have gone to see Jesus through death than obviously him coming again. And if he continues to tarry, most of those under the sound of my voice will probably go and see Jesus through death rather than see him at his coming. So that's why the Bible says today is the day of salvation because you're not promised tomorrow. If you're not ready today, today could be the day that you go through death to see Jesus Christ. And you need to be ready today. You need to bow the knee today because if you die in your sin, it is too late. Your fate is sealed. You will be cast into an eternal lake of fire. You will suffer God's wrath for all of eternity. And you don't have to because God has made a way for you to be redeemed, regenerated, and reconciled to him through Christ Jesus. You just must obey what Jesus 
says what God the Father says, that he has commanded all men everywhere to repent and believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of their life. And if you have not done that today, don't let the sun go down this evening. Don't let your eyes close on your pillow on your bed until you throw yourself on the mercy of Christ and you bow your knee to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior of your life. Well, if you uh, need to talk about that more, then send me a uh, uh, in the comments or send me a message or if you know my number or email, you can you can find me that way and let me know and i'll be glad to chat with you more about what it means to be a follower of jesus christ and until next time may the lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you